What a wonderful encouragement. There are no orphans. And so many of us, <clears throat> so many of us have, have at times felt alone, felt broken, felt defeated by life. It's such an encouragement to remember that God takes the broken. He takes the lonely. He takes the, the fatherless. And He makes us His own. Amen. Thank you, Brother Mark. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to ask you to open up to the book of Luke. Book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. The book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. Always find it interesting just the, the makeup of the Bible. Uh, the, gospel, uh, the, the Gospels are made up of uh, four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The New Testament is made up of 27 uh, different books, uh, 13 of which are written by the Apostle Paul. Then you've got a couple written by Peter. You've got a couple written by uh, a, few, a few books written by John, a few books written by uh, James and Jude. And, and, and you, you've got this, this conglomeration of, of books. But I think it's interesting that by volume, by volume, over half of the New Testament is written by the only Gentile contributor to the Bible, Luke. Over half by volume is written by Luke. The only Gentile contributor to the whole New Testament, to the whole Bible, is, is Luke. And yet he writes by volume over 50% because he writes not only the Gospel of Luke, which is the longest of the Gospels, but he also writes the Gospel of Acts, which is the largest book in the New Testament. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Luke, a Gentile, a physician, uh, uh, speeds, spends much of his time in, uh, in his gospel focusing on uh, the, the poor, focusing on uh, this is where we see the story of the Good Samaritan, this is where we see the story of the, uh, the lost son, the prodigal son, the story of the lost coin, the story of the lost sheep. All of these parables find themselves in the gospel of Luke. Why? Because he's a Gentile. The Gospel of Luke also uh, focuses a lot of its time and a lot of its uh, volume, a lot of its uh, uh, were a lot of the material in the Gospel of Luke uh, focusing focusing upon the women uh, throughout the New Testament. Just just things that that fascinate me. Uh, so now that now that I've bored you all, Luke chapter nine, verses ten through seventeen. Luke chapter nine, verses ten through seventeen. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him, him being Christ, him of all they had done. And taking, with, and taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the multitudes were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. And the day began to decline, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get something to eat, for here we are in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them recline to eat in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, and they had them all recline. And he took five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them, and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the multitude. 
And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up. Twelve baskets full. Let's pray. Father, we see your providence. We see your grace. We see your mercy. We see your your sovereign control over all events. Lord, may in this passage, may we see the application to our lives. May we be encouraged by your goodness and grace. May we be strengthened by your charge to obedience by the disciples. Lord, may you use this passage of Scripture to convict us of sin. May you use this passage of Scripture to convict us of our, of our frailty, of our lack of obedience. And Lord, may you find us this morning. May you find us desiring to hear from you. It's in Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. It's interesting as we look at this particular miracle of Jesus that we understand that all of the miracles of Jesus were not just done by happenstance. Jesus wasn't someone who would walk along the side of the road one day and say, you know, I'm bored. I think I'll turn five loaves of bread and two fish into enough food to feed thousands. I I don't have anything to do today. I think I'll go cure some blind people. I'm, I'm not really busy today. Let me go cast out some demons. That, that, that's not how Jesus operated. Every miracle that Jesus performed was done purposefully and was done to, to, to emphasize and to communicate a, an attribute, uh, to, to communicate something to his followers or something to the multitude. Let's take just a few of these and let me, let me illustrate some of this for you. The lame man. In, in the book of Mark, we see that there was a, Jesus was teaching and, and there was a multitude that was surrounding and there was this guy who couldn't get to Jesus because he was lame. And we all know this story from, from Sunday school. So his friends took him up on top of the roof. They cut a hole in the roof. They dropped him down in front of Jesus. And Jesus heals this man uh, who, was, who was lame. And he does so and he says in that passage in the book of Mark, it says, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin rise and walk so jesus heals this man to give confirmation that the son of man has authority to forgive sin because remember he's sitting there and and the 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 pharisees are looking around jesus says jesus says man your sins are forgiven and they 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 kind of say to one another you know only god can forgive sin and jesus says but because in order that you may know that the son of man has authority to forgive sin i say to you rise and walk Take up your pallet and go. And and he did just that. And so Jesus curing the lame man, Jesus healing the lame man was done so that Jesus, so that Jesus could demonstrate and affirm his authority over sin. We see the story of Lazarus as Jesus is standing at the tomb of Lazarus and, and Lazarus has been dead for four days. And Jesus says, roll the stone away. And they said, but Jesus, he's been dead for four days. We roll the stone away. He's going to stink. Nevertheless, they they rolled the stone away and Jesus stood at the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth and out hops this man bound in grave cloths. And Jesus raises Lazarus from the death simply to demonstrate that Jesus has authority over death. I'll say that again because apparently you missed that. Jesus has authority over death. He has authority over sin. He has authority over death. And Jesus is, is, is... Sovereign over all. We see as Jesus 
cures the, the, the demoniac, as Jesus cast out the, the demons out of the demoniac, there was, the, the scripture says that there was a legion of demons that, that had possessed this man. And, and they had bound him with shackles and chains and, and nothing could bind him. And he was naked and he was, he was violent and he was not in his right mind. And Jesus cast out the demons into a, into a herd of swine and they, they went and drowned themselves in the lake. And Jesus does so not simply because he was bored and wanted to do something that day, but Jesus does that. Jesus cures the demoniac, casts out the demons to demonstrate his authority over all spiritual forces. All of the miracles that Jesus performs are more than just miracles. They're done to communicate Jesus' authority. I think it's interesting, as we're beginning, as, as Jesus is beginning to, to set the stage for, for this miracle, if you look, look at verse 15. I'm sorry, uh, verse 12. Uh, and the day began to decline, and the twelve, the disciples, came to Jesus. And they tell Jesus, send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding areas, villages, and countryside, and find lodging there to get something to eat, for here we are in a desolate place. I think it's interesting how the disciples tell Jesus what to do. So oftentimes in our lives, we find ourselves in a circumstance, in a situation, in a in a a position where, where we are confronted with, with difficulty, we're confronted with trial, we're confronted with hardships, and, and we bow our heads and we pray. And we act just like these disciples. We tell God what to do. We bow our heads and we say, God, my husband just got laid off. You know, you know we've, my, you know, my, Stepson has moved in with us, you know, fill in the blank. You, you've, you've, you've got, you know, circumstances in life, you know, we've, we've just lost a loved one. Something has happened in our lives, and so we tell God, God, it would be wonderful if you could da 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 and we tell God what, what we would like for him to do. And oftentimes, those, those communications and those instructions to God are, are logical, rational instructions, are they not? I mean, it would, it would, it would make perfect sense if, if God would just give, a, give us a promotion, or if God would just allow our house to sell quickly. Or if God would just allow X, Y, or Z to take place. And, and we've got it figured out what God needs to do for us. The disciples did too. Jesus, it's not logical, it's not rational for us to try and feed these people. Let's send them away into the countryside. Besides, you know, we, don't have, we don't have the money to feed all these people. And so they communicate to Jesus what Jesus should do. I think it's interesting that Jesus' response to them. Jesus' response was, you give them something to eat. He tells them something that is completely irrational, something that is completely impossible to do. The book of Luke, chapter 18, verse 27, it tells us, that, that that which is impossible with God, or pos- that which is impossible with man, 
are possible with God. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it tells us that, that with faith, with that, that without faith it's impossible to please God. And so we understand that, that the impossible is possible with God, and, and Jesus commands his disciples to do the impossible. Do you ever feel like the commission, the, the, the mission that God has given us, his church, to do is, is just overwhelming? It's impossible. Have you ever, have you ever as, as, a, as a believer in Christ, Flip over with me, if you will, to the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew, chapter 28. Jesus, and, and let, me, let me kind of set the stage for you. Jesus has died. He's been buried. He's risen from the grave. He's appeared to his disciples a handful of times. And now he is about to ascend into heaven. And, and he tells his disciples, Matthew, chapter 28, verse 18. He says, all authority has been given unto me. Therefore, verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. At this point, there's only 11 of them because Judas is, is on his way to, to hang himself. At this point, there's 11 of them. A few fishermen. The, the, the most educated of them, Judas, is gone. You got a few fishermen, a tax collector, a, 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 a member of a, of a political uh, uh, of a rebellious political group. You've got, you've got a bunch of nobodies. And he says, go into all the nations, making disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I'm with you always, teaching them to observe all that I commanded, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now he gives this command to 11 men to go into all the nations. Let alone they don't have any money, they don't have any means, they don't have any education. He tells them to do that which is impossible. There are times as a, as a pastor, as, as a Christian, I feel that the, the, the ministry that God has given us is, is impossible. I come to work every morning and we have chapel with 80, 90 kids here, 80, 90 kids at the other campus. I look in these families, there's, there's you know, divorce, substance abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, you know, uh, uh, grandma's raising, you know, two and three kids because mom is, is, is addicted to, to whatever it is and, and she's lost custody of the kids and, and there's mom and dad who are fighting over these kids and, and God has, has given us the, the, the mission to reach these people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus and, and it, it is an impossible task. And then you walk off of this campus and you, and you go to the, to the park next door and you go to the grocery store and you go to the, to the ball field and you see the vast lostness in the world. And you realize that God has given us a commission to reach them with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an impossible task. The Great Commission is indeed an impossible task. But I want us to note, go back to the passage in Luke chapter 9. Jesus gives them an impossible task. He says, you feed them. After they've told Jesus what, what he should do, Jesus says, no, 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 let me remind you, I'm the one in charge. 
So, so I'm going to tell you what we're going to do, not the other way around. And sometimes in our lives, we need to be reminded that Jesus is the one in control, that God is the one in control. And when everything happens in our life and, and the wheels fall off, sometimes we need to be reminded that God is the one who's in control. He is the one who's telling us what to do, not the other way around. And so Jesus reminds his disciples of that. He says, no, you give them something to eat. And then it's important for us to see that, that as Jesus gives them their their marching orders as he gives them the the steps that they're going to take notice here we have in verse 13 he says you give them something to eat they they come up with an excuse they say we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people verse 14 and he said to his disciples have them recline in groups of about 50 he doesn't even he doesn't even dignify their their excuse with an answer he just said have them sit down in groups of about 50. Now, I want us to understand and I want us to see this in the passage. All of the authority lies with Christ. Yet, all of the work and all of the responsibility lies with whom? The disciples. Jesus is the one who's going to be breaking the bread. Jesus is the one who has authority over, over all things. Jesus is the one who is the provider of all things. But the disciples are the ones who are doing the work. Do you see the correlation in our Christian life? God is the one who is in complete authority. Christ is in authority. It tells us in, in Colossians chapter 1 that, that, that Christ is sovereign and preeminent over all. It tells us in John chapter 1 that, that Christ is, is before all. It tells us that Christ has complete authority over all. But time and time again, throughout the scripture, throughout the New Testament, we see that he commands Christians, he commands believers, he commands his church to be the body of Christ, to do the work of an evangelist, to serve others, to give of ourselves. All of the authority lies with Jesus, yet all of the work and all of the responsibility was with his followers. Now, what did, his response, what did his disciples, what did his followers have to do? The very first thing they had to do was they had to trust Jesus. In order for Christ to use them to accomplish his task, the very first thing they had to do was they had to trust Jesus. Church, so oftentimes we, we, we sit in church and we say, God, I, I want you to use me. I want you to, to, to work through me. And I, I want you to change my family. I want you to change my life. I want you to do all of this. But we never fully trust Christ. We say, God, I, I, I want this and I want that and I want that. We tell God what to do. And he says, you've got to trust me. Job chapter 13, verse 15. Job says, in the midst of, in the midst of everything that, that Job is experiencing, the loss of his wealth, the loss of his family, the loss of his health, Jesus says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And at this point, Job thinks he's dying. He says, though he kills me, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 says, trust in the Lord in all of your ways. He says, do not lean on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. We have 
to trust in God. The, the, the very first thing that the disciples had to do in order to accomplish what God had given, what, what Christ had set out for them to do, was they had to trust Jesus. Jesus said, have them sit down. Now, they could have very well argued with Jesus. They could have very well said, Jesus, this is stupid. It doesn't make any sense. But no, they had to trust Jesus. The second thing that the disciples had to do after they trust Jesus, the disciples had to continually come to Jesus for food. Imagine. There were, the scripture tells us there were 5,000 men. Chances are this wasn't a, a men's only event. Chances are this wasn't some promise keepers rally of, of the uh, ancient Near East. Chances are there was probably other women and children there. So 5,000 is probably a very conservative number. Uh, probably closer to to 10, 15,000 people were there that day on a, on a conservative estimate. Now, I know, and, and many of you know as well from doing uh, you know, potluck dinners at, at church, that, that it takes a long time to get 150 people through a, through a, through a, a, a line. You know, you've all been at Piccadilly on, on Sunday morning when the Methodists beat us to, church, or to Piccadilly, and, 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 and you get there at the end, and, and you've got to wait forever, and there's only a couple hundred people in line. And how much bread and fish can one man carry? So as the disciples are distributing food to thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, where do they get the food? Jesus. Who's got the food? Jesus. All right, let me, let me, let me see if I can make an application to our lives. Who has the spiritual food for us, church? Jesus. Who has the sustenance? Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the vine, and he who abides in me will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is our providence. Jesus is our sustenance. The disciples had to continually come back to Jesus to get food to go give to people. How can we, as Christians, be a blessing to others if we ourselves are spiritually empty? How do we get, how do we get food? How do we get filled? By fellowshipping with other believers. By worshiping together with other believers. By hearing His Word taught and preached. By spending time in His Word. By going to Jesus to get food. So oftentimes I sit in my office and I have, have somebody, whether it's a young person, whether it's an old person, they say, you know, I just, I'm not really growing in, in, in my walk with Christ. You know, I've, I've been to this, I've done that, I've done this, I've done that, and I'm not really growing in Christ. And my first answer is, well, tell me about your prayer life. Oh, well, well you know, I, I pray every morning, I pray every night. Okay, so you spend 12 minutes in prayer out of 24 hours a day and, and you're wondering why you're starving spiritually. Well, how much time do you spend in God's Word? Oh, I spend at least 30 minutes reading God's Word every day. And we wonder why we're starving spiritually. The third thing, the disciples, not only did they have to trust Jesus, not only did they have to continually come back to Jesus for food, 
But the disciples had to serve the multitudes. So oftentimes, as the church, we think that it's the responsibility for the church to serve me. It's the responsibility for Christ to serve me. It's the responsibility for, for, for me to come and receive. And we treat church just like the supermarket. We go to this church because they have good youth ministry. We go to that church because they have good music ministry. We like this church because they have a good children's ministry. And, and, and we want to get something from church. How many times have you heard someone, uh, very godly people say, you know, I, I just didn't really get anything out of church today. Why, have you, why, why are we coming to church? The scripture says that as believers in Christ, that we come to serve, to be the body of Christ. And there is a consumer-driven mentality because you're told all day, every day, by the media and by every th- everyone and everything else that, that this world and everything in this world is so that we can serve and satisfy you. The customer is always right. I'll take my business elsewhere. The disciples, the followers of Jesus were the ones serving the multitude. Look at what Paul said to the church in Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. As Paul is encouraging the churches in Galatia, he says, let us not lose heart doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Church, I know there's times, especially at the end of vacation Bible school, at the end of Awana, at the end of the Christmas play, that you go home and you're like, oh, that was wonderful, but I am so glad that I don't ever have to go to another Christmas play, at least for another six months. That I don't ever have to have another practice. That I don't ever have to, oh, it's going to be so enjoyable during this summer not having to, to, to be up at church for an hour and a half. I know it's exhausting. I know Don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. Paul says it a second way in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 13 to the church at Thessalonica. He says, do not grow weary in your well-doing. He says, but brother, don't grow weary in doing good because as the church, it is our responsibility to serve others. The disciples trusted Jesus. They continually came to Jesus for food and they served others we are the church we have the bread we have the bread of life and church there is an urgency about the gospel hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says it is appointed for man to die once and after that to face the judgment there's a reality that everyone will die Everyone, your co-workers, your family, your brothers, your sisters, your aunts, your uncles, your moms, your dads, your nieces, your nephews, your friends, your loved ones. And there's an urgency about the gospel. The responsibility of the miracle lied with whom? It lied with Jesus. Was it the disciples' responsibility to, to multiply the loaves and the fish? No. What was the disciples' responsibility? Trust Jesus, continually come back to him to get food, and to serve the people. 
The responsibility of the miracle lied in the hands of Jesus. But the responsibility in carrying out and being obedient lies with the church. The responsibility of the miracle always lies with Christ, but the responsibility of the work always lies with His church. Redemption, salvation, is indeed a fantastic, phenomenal miracle. And that responsibility of the miracle lies with God. You and I cannot save anyone. You and I cannot, cannot cause someone to be born again. You and I cannot bring someone unto salvation. The responsibility of the gospel, the responsibility of the miracle, lies with God and God alone. We cannot save anyone. They cannot save themselves. The scripture says that, that God himself must work that miracle. But the responsibility of communicating the gospel lies with us. Romans chapter 10 says, says, how shall they hear if we don't tell them? Salvation comes by, by hearing and by hearing from the word of God. And, and how shall they hear without a preacher? And that's not talking about the office of a preacher. It's talking about how will they hear if no one tells them? There's an urgency about the gospel. And there is a reality of a biblical heaven and a biblical hell. And the scripture tells us that if we die without personal faith in Christ, that we will spend an eternity in a Christless hell. How much do you have to hate someone to sit beside them every day at work and know that, that there is a real heaven and a real hell, and if they die without a relationship with Jesus, that they're going to die and spend eternity in a Christless hell? How much do you have to hate someone to not tell them about Jesus? There's a real heaven and a real hell and there's an urgency. And we, church, have the responsibility of communicating the gospel. Salvation lies with God. The miracle lies with God. Only He can save. Only He can, can draw men unto Himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. Only He can convince them of their need for salvation. But we have a responsibility to tell, church. So I don't, I don't, I don't know all these fancy Bible verses. I don't, I don't know how to communicate that. Do you know Jesus? Tell him your story. Tell him your story. And they overcame him by the word of their mouth. And by the blood of the Lamb. And they loved not their life even unto death. There's some of you here this morning. You know that if, if you died today, if you got out in that parking lot and you got in your car and, and there was an accident and you died and you stood before God, that you'd spend an eternity in a devil's hell. But you so desire. You desire to come to Christ. You desire to, to, to spend eternity in heaven. Well, the reality is, is that, that we're all born into this world with sin. And we are just, God is just whenever he, he punishes us and judges us because of our sin and condemns us to an eternity in hell. But the scripture tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that, that Jesus came, the scriptures tells us that God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And the gospel message is this, that yes, 
God punishes sin and God judges sin, but because of God's love and God's grace, he sent Christ to take our place. And if we place our faith and trust in Jesus, that we might be able to escape the horrors of hell and enjoy the glories of heaven for all of eternity. And the responsibility for us is to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. In just a few moments, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. This morning, there are two invitations I have. One is for those who don't know Jesus. Or you know who he is, but you've never trusted him with your life. This morning, I want to invite you to come. Or there are those here this morning who've not been obedient in carrying out the message of the gospel. Maybe God has convicted you of of friends, loved ones, family members that you need to share the gospel with. Co-workers that you need to invite to church. Friends and loved ones who you need to share your testimony with. This invitation this morning is for you as well. May you repent of your lack of obedience and make a commitment to be obedient to the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth that the miracle lies with you, that we cannot save, we cannot bring salvation, we cannot change a heart. But the truth of the gospel is that the reality of the work and the responsibility of communicating the gospel lies with us as believers. We have a responsibility to share the gospel with all those who we come in contact with. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus, or you've walked down an aisle and you've got wet in a baptistry, you've prayed with a preacher, but you've never yielded your life to the authority of Christ, I want to invite you to come. Or maybe you're here this morning and you know that you haven't been obedient in sharing the gospel and you need to come and repent, not before me, but before God. And you need to make a commitment to be obedient, to communicate the gospel to those whom He brings in your path. Maybe there are those here this morning who are struggling with hardships, trials in your life, and you've been telling God what to do. And this morning, he just wants you to fall on his face, fall on your face before him and listen to what he has to tell you. God, may you encourage us this morning during this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.